Hello everyone, I'm Heather Ward, the SCA's Director of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Podcast. Today's episode is part of our Expo Lecture Series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at our Specialty Coffee Expo. Check out the show notes for relevant links and a full transcript of today's lecture. This episode of the Expo 2019 Lectures podcast is supported by Soft Engine Coffee One, powered by SAP. Built upon SAP's business-leading enterprise resource planning solution, Soft Engine Coffee One is designed to quickly and easily take your small to medium coffee company, working at any point along the coffee chain, to the next level of success. Learn more about Soft Engine Coffee One at softengine.com, with special pricing available for SCA members. Soft Engine, the most intelligent way to grow your business. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the 2019 Specialty Coffee Expo in Boston. Don't miss next year's lecture series in Portland. Find us on social media or sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up to date with all of our announcements, including ways to get involved in next year's expo and early bird ticket release. The process for brewing coffee appears simple. One pours hot water over some coffee grounds and then drinks the liquid that passes through a filter. This superficial perspective, however, contradicts a sequence of complicated physical and chemical processes that govern the quality of the resulting beverage. In today's lecture, Professor Bill Ristenpart discusses the origins of the coffee brewing control chart, widely used to interpret the quality of drip brew coffee and how several implicit assumptions in the origin of the chart yield questionable interpretations in current practice. Also discussed are several unanswered questions regarding drip coffee brewing, that are the subject of ongoing sustained research efforts at the UC Davis Coffee Center. Bill Ristenpart is a professor of chemical engineering and the founding director of the Coffee Center at the University of California, Davis. He received his PhD from Princeton University and his postdoctoral research at Harvard University. In 2012, Professor Ristenpart co-developed ECH1, The Design of Coffee, which is now the most popular elective general education course on campus taught to almost 2,000 students per year. Also, I will jump in occasionally to help you follow along. So, thank you, Peter. And uh, thank you. Thank you for showing up uh, at 9 a.m. for for this lecture. And so, what I'll be talking about today is kind of encapsulated in this title here. I'm going to be focusing on drip coffee brewing and really specifically focusing and zooming in on one particular aspect of that, which is How does the geometry of the brew basket affect matters? Uh, But first, uh, because I'm from the coffee center, not many people are familiar with the coffee center, I thought first I'd break this talk into two parts. I'd spend a few minutes just talking about what is the coffee center. I'll talk a little bit about what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish at UC Davis with academic research focused on coffee. And then, as promised, I'll dive deeply into what happens when you brew coffee and what you change is just the geometry of the brew basket. So part one, let's talk a little bit about the coffee center. Okay, and so, so first of all, if you're not familiar, UC Davis, it's located in California. It's, it's about an hour uh, drive from uh, San Francisco. It's very close to Napa Valley, where a lot of good wines come from. It's a pretty big campus, uh, almost 30,000 undergraduates, 100 different majors. This is what it looks like, lots of bicycles uh, around, <clears throat> many international students. There are many famous University of California campuses. Everybody's sort of Berkeley, UCLA. UC Davis is the only one that really focuses on food science and on agriculture. And so in that regard, it's, it's pretty famous for its programs, especially uh, in wine. So here are some pictures of the, something called the Robert Mondavi Institute uh, for Wine and Food Science. And so it's a brand-new facility, uh, costs about $100 million to build, based on the generosity of uh, Mr. Mondavi, who is a pretty famous vintner in Napa Valley. And so uh, there's vineyards, there's a pilot winery, a uh, uh, pilot brewery, lots of really cool infrastructure. I'd like to show one of these buildings right here is, is the Pilot Winery. And so it's, it, it's actually the world's first LEED Platinum certified food production facility. And so the LEED Platinum is a very high uh, standard for energy, sustainability, and efficiency. And so there's a winery. There's the Anheuser-Busch uh, Brewery. There's a California Tomato Processors uh, Pilot Food Processing Facility. The facilities here are used by uh, hundreds of students, dozens of faculty. Um, they teach it at the undergraduate, graduate level. Really a busy uh, um, place for wine and food science. And what I'd like to point out for coffee audiences 
is that precisely 0% of this infrastructure was dedicated to coffee. Like, it's none of it. Okay? And so why is it? How can we build something 10 years ago and not have any attention paid to coffee? The reasons for that are historical. Uh, as you guys, I'm sure, are all aware, coffee is not grown in the United States to any significant extent. And so the Department of Viticulture and Enology uh, dates back to the founding of the University of California back in the 1880s. And it's literally written into the California State Constitution that there will be a university that will study things like wine and grapes. There was no Napa Valley of coffee. The coffee was not grown there. No, there was no agricultural impetus, no congressional or government impetus. And without that government support, there was no coffee academics, um, no coffee professors, no coffee science. Okay. And that's not just UC. That's basically everywhere in the United States. Historically, there is just no coffee academia. And so uh, Peter mentioned I'm a chemical engineer. And so a lot of people ask me, what does chemical engineering have to do with coffee? Like, why are you talking about it? And so let me, let me, let me give just a couple minutes about how I got into it, my origin story in coffee. And so a few years ago, my colleague, uh, Professor Tanya Kuhl, and I had an idea. We wanted to use coffee to teach chemical engineering. Bill has two pictures on screen. On the left side is a pile of green coffee beans, and on the right, a picture of brewed coffee. An arrow points from the green beans to the cup of coffee, and there's a question mark in it. Okay, and so what do I mean by that? Okay, and so this is actually a slide we use from uh, our lectures, Here's, you guys all recognize this. We have green coffee beans. And then you do something. You do something and it turns into a cup of coffee. And chemical engineers are, are in here. All right? What do we do? We design ways to convert raw materials into some type of more valuable product. And if you think about what do you need to know to do the stuff in that arrow and the question mark, these are the type of things we teach in our curriculum. We talk about transport phenomena, which means how does heat move from here to there? How do fluids move from here to there? How do molecules like caffeine or other molecules move from a solid phase to a liquid phase. Thermodynamics, that's heat and its relationship to energy and work. And then what makes chemical engineers distinct is the focus on chemical reactions. When you guys are roasting coffee, or when you're brewing coffee, you might not think about it, but you're doing a tremendous amount of chemistry. Okay? And so the key point here is that all these things are really crucial for understanding coffee. And so uh, Tanya and I developed a class, it's called ECH1, The Design of Coffee. Um, it, it's one hour of lecture per week, two hours of hands-on lab activities where the students get to roast coffee on little benchtop roasters. We get to brew coffee, measure the pH versus time, teach core scientific and engineering principles using coffee as a working uh, example. And so um, we do, uh, like I mentioned, a whole bunch of things. We talk about conservation of mass, measure pH, talk about chemical kinetics. And we do uh, all these experiments and analysis. And then we switch to design, where the students work in teams. And it's a really fun tasting competition, okay, uh, where the students work in groups to make a liter of the best tasting coffee, using the least amount of electrical energy, all right? And so you guys know how difficult it is to make good taste in coffee. Imagine if you're trying to make good taste in coffee while also minimizing your energy usage. And so it's a classic optimization uh, problem, uh, but it's one that's fun, okay? Bill is showing a chart titled Number of Students Per Academic Year. The point to note is the introductory beer course, the blue line, had over 1,200 students in 2011, but attendance dropped by 200 students in 2015. Coffee, on the other hand, the red bar, went from 18 to 2012 to over 1,500 by 2015. Um, and so just to say a little bit about the class, uh, this is the number of academic students per year taking a couple classes at UC Davis. The blue bars here are the beer introductory course, okay? And you, you can draw your own conclusion about the trend there. The red is the coffee, okay? And so we started with 18 students in 2012, and now we're, uh, with all the different varieties of the class, we're up to almost, almost 2,000 students per year take uh, the coffee class at, at UC Davis. And uh, this is my absolute favorite slide. Here's the student newspaper. Bill is presenting a clip out from the student newspaper at UC Davis. Every year they have a, a vote, uh, the students, like they do a survey. And a few years, a couple years ago, the best general education course, the students voted. Number one was design of coffee. Number two was introduction to human sexuality. Number three was introduction to beer brewing. So, <laughs> At UC Davis, coffee is better than beer and sex. Okay, so that's okay. right. so that, that's how that's how I got into coffee. Okay, um, so it was really a teaching exercise. But very early on, as we started teaching, we, it became very quickly apparent that there was a lot of unmet needs in the coffee industry, both for research and for education focused on coffee, which historically there hadn't been. And so early on, we started developing collaborations with especially Coffee Association the National Coffee Association, thought leaders in the coffee industry. And so this is a little timeline showing what's going on. Uh, that's when I rolled out our freshman class. Um, we started getting some faculty together to think about things. We renovated our undergraduate coffee lab in 2015. 
2016, Pete's Coffee uh, gave a very generous founding gift to found the UC Davis Coffee Center. And since then, uh, I've been spending a lot of time uh, working with uh, different uh, thought leaders and uh, um, companies in the coffee industry to uh, build up the coffee center. And so what's the excitement about? One of the most exciting things is that there's a whole building that suddenly became available on campus. All right? um, and so this building, uh, the previous occupants moved out, and the administration gave us the green light and said, hey, you can have this building if you raise some funds, raise some support from the coffee industry. And so that's what we've been doing. And the main idea for this building is to have everything you need for coffee, science, and advanced education under one roof. And so there's going to be an experimental green bean storage facility. Uh, there's going to be a pilot roastery. There's going to be a brewing espresso laboratory, a dedicated sensory descriptive laboratory, chemistry laboratory, uh, innovation space, classroom space, office space, outside greenhouse space, everything you need for advanced research and education focused specifically on coffee. Um, and so as part of this, I've been spending the past few months doing a tremendous amount of meeting with architects, and so we're in the final stages of architecture. Um, so you can see here, uh, here's an example of, of the, the floor plan from above. Bill is showing the floor plan of the coffee center, with different rooms with names such as Advanced Coffee Analytical Laboratory, Pilot Cold Brew and Advanced Packaging Facility, Sensory and Cupping Laboratory, Pete's Coffee Pilot Roastery, and others. Here's some renderings. Uh, we're putting a lot of work into making this a beautiful space where people from industry, you guys, you're all invited to come visit Davis uh, uh, to come see this when it's built. Um, we want to have it be a place so it can hold not only ad education events and, and do research, but also hold reception, social activities, and things like that. So here's a rendering from the outside looking in. You can see a roastery here. Okay. Here's the sensory and descriptive lab, a couple of traditional cupping tables, and more importantly, uh, we'll have some sensory isolation description booths, which I'll talk about more in this talk. Okay. And so, so that we're really excited about this uh, as, we're, as we're moving forward. One thing I should emphasize is that it's not just me. And one of the great things about UC Davis is there's more than 2,000 faculty on campus. There's a subset. Here's about 40 or so different professors from all these different departments around campus who have interest and expertise that pertains to coffee. Okay? And so you can see everything from plant genetics. Um, Juan Majano is uh, one of the guys who helped sequence the genome of Cafe Arabica. You know, plant science, obviously microbiology, all the ways around to... Um, you know, this being California, we have somebody in the law school involved, all the way down to sensory science. So there's quite a few faculty involved, okay? And there's lots of cool things going on. Um, so I think many of you have seen this Coffee Tasters flavor wheel. Bill is showing the cover of the Journal of Food Science. The cover page shows the Coffee Tasters flavor wheel. Um, I think less well-known is that uh, one, of the, um, one of the main contributions to this was by a graduate student, that's Molly Spencer, who is, was at UC Davis. She did the statistical analysis um, that gave rise to the precise positioning of all the different terms in the lexicon in the uh, Coffee Tasters Flavor Wheel, and she published that on the cover of the Journal of Food Science, which if you're a graduate student in food science, that's like the holy grail. Like, that, that's really awesome. Um, <clears throat> there's lots of other cool things going on. Um, uh, one of my colleagues, Daniela Brill, is a food chemist. She just published some really nice work on oligosaccharides in coffee. That's the fancy word for means sugars, right? so things that lend sweetness to coffee. Um, I mentioned this work of the Coffee Genome Project. This is uh, being led by Juan Modrano and uh, his colleagues. Um, Linda Harris is a food safety microbiologist. And so you guys all know cold brew is exploding. Lots of concerns about food safety and cold brew. You know, if you have it sitting on the shelf for a while. Things like salmonella and listeria and E. coli can start growing. Understanding how storage conditions and treatment conditions affect that is important. And then uh, here's, here's my name here. There's some really cool stuff going on right now um, that I'm doing a collaboration with Jean-Xavi Guinard on the coffee brewing control chart. Okay? And we'll say more about that. In a second. Oh, and something that's very exciting right now is uh, we're actually hiring our very first uh, staff position for the coffee center. Um, we delayed the closing date for receiving applications till after this conference. So if you know of somebody or if you're interested in coming and being the head roaster at UC Davis and teaching students how to roast and being in charge of the pilot roastery, check it out. Uh, please apply. And that's supported in part uh, by a generous philanthropic uh, don donation by Probot, but it's a UC Davis employee and we're, we're taking applications right now. So please, uh, please. Uh, um, let your friends know. Okay. And as part of this, I already mentioned this, uh, so there's some other cool talks besides what I'm talking about today. Um, uh, Dr. Scott Frost is a postdoc. Uh, um, he's talking in detail about the coffee brewing control chart. Lots of fascinating data. That's later today, this morning, 1130. Uh, Kenzie Batali uh, is talking tomorrow morning. She's fractionating coffee and doing detailed sensory descriptive analysis of it and relating it to the chemistry. That's tomorrow morning. And then uh, one of my colleagues uh, in the sociology department, um, so on the other side of campus from engineering, well, that's David Kyle. He's doing also another talk tomorrow morning with his students, talking about one of the classes he's developed at UC Davis, focusing on cultural and the historical and sociological aspects 
of coffee consumption. So if you're really into that stuff, I recommend you check that out. Okay, so that was just a few minutes talking about a very whirlwind introduction to UC Davis and the coffee center. Lots of cool, I think, and exciting things going on. Let's get into coffee brewing, coffee extraction, okay? And so very specifically, let's talk about what happens during uh, brewing when you change the geometry. First, a little bit of historical perspective. In the world of coffee science, this is a pretty important name. There was a guy named Ernest Earl Lockhart. Uh, he, really fascinating story. This guy was one of the early explorers of Antarctica. Okay, so there he is wearing his uh, parka and whatnot. Um, and then he, started, he went to MIT. He was a biochemist, started studying coffee. And uh, 20 years later, he looked like this. Bill has two black and white photographs of Ernest Earl Lockhart side by side. The left is of Ernest with a long beard wearing a 1940s Arctic snow jacket. The second of him, clean-shaven, wearing glasses, and a suit and tie in the 1960s. I, <clears throat> hopefully, if you study coffee for too long, that's not what will happen to me. I, I don't know. Uh, but <clears throat> he, so, um, what did he do? Uh, there's some nice history. I'm a stage wrote a nice uh, article about it. What did he do? He was the director of uh, something called the Coffee Brewing Institute. And this is back in the 50s, back when um, they were very interested in understanding how to make instant coffee, soluble coffee, things like that. And he wrote what's uh, really kind of a seminal paper. It's called The Soluble Solids in Beverage Coffee as an Index to Cup Quality. And uh, he was trying to do something very challenging. He was trying to assign a single number, an index, a single number to assess or you know, judge the quality of a cup of coffee. And highlighted here is a, a statement that is as true in 2019 as it was half a century ago. The quality or acceptability of coffee beverage or any other food product is very difficult to describe or measure. Uh, very true, very true. Okay? Um, and so, but he had a pretty uh, cool idea. He wanted to link something about the soluble solids. And so what does that mean? Um, this, uh, in terms of the implications, it's been now um, encaptured in the coffee brewing handbook. So many of you might know Ted Lingle. There's a picture of him in the 1990s holding up an early version of the coffee taster's flavor wheel. Um, Ted went and compiled all the stuff that Lockhart and the Coffee Brewing Institute did and put it together in the Brewing Handbook, which my understanding is still the number one selling uh, book that the SCA uh, publishes. And so what's in the Brewing Handbook? Um, well, the main feature of it is this, something called the Coffee Brewing Control Chart. Right now, we recommend pausing this podcast and Googling an image of the Coffee Brewing Control Chart for this next section before hitting play again. And so if you've have had the opportunity to take some of the training uh, that... Uh, um, SEA and others uh, offer, you've probably learned about this, but just very briefly, what does it show? Um, on the vertical axis is the solubles concentration, otherwise known as the strength, okay, or the total dissolved solids. It's literally measuring how much stuff is in your cup of coffee, okay, how strong is it? That's the vertical axis, and the horizontal axis is extraction, and that, that refers to how much mass, how much of the molecules did you rip out of the solid phase of the coffee grounds into the liquid phase, okay? That's the horizontal axis. The diagonal lines are the brew ratio, how much water to coffee grounds, the mass ratio did you use. And so these two charts are the same. This is the kind of like published version. This is exactly the same thing, just uh, my version, a little bit easier to read. Um, and the key thing here is that even though this has you know, uh, been kind of uh, taught um, uh, over the past half century, it has several technical and sensory shortcomings. Okay? And so uh, I won't go into great detail about it. Uh, uh, Dr. Frost is talking about it in much more detail at 11.30. Very briefly, one of the problems is that this chart suggests that there's a big difference between, for example, 17.9 and 18.1 uh, percent uh, extraction. All right, and so, and that's that's not true. Okay, so it's not true that you can it's basically suggest that there's a huge difference at a critical dis, like critical extraction value. Not necessarily true. Another problem is that it conflates sensory descriptive attributes. Okay, what does it taste like with hedonic or preference judgments, like ideal? All right. So Lockhart and his colleagues uh, put forth the idea that there's this you know, ideal range right here. And that's not necessarily true. Some consumers like it here, some don't. Okay? And so what you, in, in modern sensory science, you don't conflate those two things. You don't mix together sensory and hedonic uh, judgments. Okay? And so and this is not an observation original to us. I think a lot of the thought leaders in the coffee industry have realized this for a while. And so uh, we were very delighted to uh, partner with especially coffee associations starting a couple of years ago to tackle this uh, problem, to do some research and to update and expand the coffee brewing uh, control chart. And so the Specialty Coffee Association provided the funding with uh, underwriting uh, from Breville Corporation, which makes uh, uh, these uh, uh, precision brewers. And so uh, there's me, the people doing it. Here's Professor Jean-Xavier Guinard. So I'm an engineer. He is a food scientist, and he is with uh, tremendous expertise in sensory and consumer science. And then the people actually really did the work, uh, Scott Frost, and here's uh, Mackenzie 
uh, Batali, um, who's a, now a PhD student at Davis. And so, so this is a very big project. We're uh, doing lots of work over the entire range of the coffee brewing control chart. Right here, for the purpose of this talk, I want to focus on uh, one aspect of what we did, which is, again, this, this idea I've been teasing here is, what's the difference, what happens when you use different shape geometry to brew your coffee? Bill's slide is titled, What is Better for Drip Brewing, Flat Bottom or Conical? The slide has two diagrams, one of a flat bottom basket with square sides and one of a semi-conical triangular basket. So you have a filter basket, the water comes in, it drips through, okay? And very simple question to ask, which one's better? What's better? Should we use a flat or should we use a conical, right? So easy, easy to ask, not so easy to answer, okay? But first let me just say, why does this matter? I mean, of all the things you could study, like why, why this? Well, it matters a lot if you're, uh, for example, a manufacturer of a drip coffee brewer. Uh, a large fraction, something like half of uh, coffee drinkers, still, uh, they don't go to uh, expensive cafes, so they go and brew coffee at home. Okay? And so what you're looking at here, I apologize, it's hard to read. This is a, a plot of the price of different drip brewers versus manufacturer, and each of these points is an individual point. I had a statistics undergraduate who wanted to do some work, and she went and scraped the internet uh, for pricing information. She's giving a poster outside, and so if you want to see some of the details about this, here the prices range from about $20 up to $300, okay? And a key thing here, and what I really want to focus on here, um, is looking at the different types of shapes. And so each of these points here is a different model of brewer, and we differentiated it based on the shape, okay? So some are pure cones, there's a very few, the vast majority are flat bottom baskets, and there's quite a few that are semi-conical, semi-conical brew baskets, okay? And the vast majority of the ones crowded around here, the more inexpensive ones are flat, and there's a pretty big variation in price between the ones that are semi-conical, okay? And so, and so why is this? Why, how come half brewers are flat? How come half are conical? Like, why, why does that go? Or, you know, and why, why is there such a preference for semi-conical at the very high end of the price range, okay? And so, well... Presumably, it has something to do with how the geometry affects the taste of your coffee, okay? And so here's the question we ask very specifically. How does this geometry affect the extraction, and how does it affect the flavor profile, okay? And so how are we going to answer that? Well, here's the main idea, a very simple idea, okay? We're going to change only the basket shape and then see what happens, okay? And so um, Breville not only provided underwriting, but they have this uh, very convenient uh, brewer Convenient in the sense of it has a nice little brew basket that you can insert a semi-conical brew basket. So you can easily swap out with one brewer whether it is flat or semi-conical. And what we want to do with this work is hold a whole bunch of things constant. We're going to have the, the water composition uh, constant. Many of you guys know about the PPM and like you know the specific water chemistry. We hold that constant, so we use the same water. Hold the same the feed temperature. What what's the temperature of the water coming in? Have that constant. The brewer ratio. How much water total to uh, uh, coffee grounds? The, uh, the feed flow rate, the filter type, we have all those things, just keep everything locked down, okay? And what do we change? The independent variable is the basket geometry, so we just swap that out. And then, uh, because we want to make sure that whatever results we find don't pertain only to one certain type of coffee or certain grind size, we repeated the experiments with a few different grind sizes and coffees at different roast levels. And so when we set things up like that, that's the independent variable. What are the dependent variables? That's what the consequence is. Well, it's whatever you get, right? So you, you will change what total dissolved solids you have, the strength of your coffee. You're going to change your effective extraction. The mass flow rate, how quickly it comes out, is going to change. The brew temperature might change. And the sensor profile might change. So those are all the things that we're going to measure as a consequence of changing uh, the basket geometry. Okay? And so uh, just to show um, what we mean by our different grind size distributions, uh, we, had, we, uh, we have a nice little uh, Malkinig uh, um, grinder. Bill is showing a photo of a Malconig Kenya coffee grinder. Next to it are six grind size distribution curves. They show the grind size distribution curves for fine, medium, and coarse grinds using two types of coffee, a light roast and a dark roast. We used for the purposes of this study three different grind sizes. If you guys have this model, uh, the numbers are three, four, and five. For the purpose of this study, we called it just just internally, we called it fine, medium, and coarse. Uh, that's with respect to each other. It's not, I'm not trying to imply any type of um, industry standard there, but the, this is finer. Right? So here, uh, this grind setting, uh, the median size is about 800 microns. So what you're looking at here are particle size distribution. So here's the, the, the uh, count of, count of size, uh, count of particles versus size. Okay? So this is 800 uh, medians. Grind four, it's about 1,000 microns. Grind five, is about 1,200 microns. 
So these are not insignificant changes in grind size. This is a 25% increase in grind size. This is a 50% increase in grind size. And then we did it for a couple different roasts. Uh, the, the light quality in here is not very good, but you can see this is kind of a little bit lighter, and this is a little bit darker. Okay? So when we say light and dark roast, I know that people have firm opinions about what a light roast is. This is maybe in your mind, substitute lighter. This is a lighter roast, and this is a darker roast. Okay? Okay, so that's our raw materials, okay? And here's the type of data that we uh, acquire, okay? And so what are we looking at here? This is um, a plot of temperature, uh, sorry, this is a plot of total dissolved solids as a function of time. And so in these experiments, what we can do is fractionate the coffee. And so we just, we start the brew, we capture the first few seconds of drip brew that comes out, and then we get a new tube, and then capture the next few seconds, and then the next few seconds, and then we go and independently measure each of those. Independently measure each of those. So many of you brew coffee, you just measure at the end of the brew, what's, you get one number, and that's the total, kind of the time integrated, that's the total aggregate TDS. These are the, the total dissolved solids of each fraction. And right off the bat, you can see that, wow, there's wild differences between the flat geometry and the conical one. So if looking at the flat, you see it comes out at a really high TDS, so 4.0, that's the first stuff that comes out is really concentrated, and then it gets progressively weaker, and then it hits a plateau, and it kind of bounces around um, somewhere around 0 0.6, 0 0.7 for a very long time. And then as you, as you reach the end of your brew cycle, um, the last few fractions are smaller mass, bump up a little bit. So that's flat. It starts off, I think, and this is the way it's intuitive for most people, the first stuff that comes out is strong, and then it gets weaker and weaker. Um, what's surprising me, at least, is how long and flat this tail is here. And that's with the flat. So you do it, and again, change nothing. So this is the same grind size, same roast, same temperature, same everything else. Just change the geometry of the brew basket, and look, the dynamics completely change. What happens, the first uh, stuff coming out is actually a much weaker total dissolved solids. And then it goes up, hits a peak, sometime like more than a minute into the brew, okay? And then it decays, right? And goes down to some lower level, right? And so the dynamics are dramatically different. And we have data like this. Um, this, is, this is for a particular ground size and for a particular... Um, I'll, I'll be happy to take a bunch of questions at the end, okay? Thank you. Um, and so the, the, uh, we have... Representative data, this is just one set of data. We have data like this for all the different grind sizes, all the different uh, roast levels, okay? And just an example of this, we're also measuring in detail the temperature. That's one of the, uh, one of the dependent variables that also is a consequence. You change the geometry, you change the heat flux out of the system, you change the brew temperature. Bill has a series of graphs that show the average brew temperature across the different variables, dark to light roast and fine grind to coarse grind. The flat-bottom brewer using coarsely ground, light-roasted coffee has the lowest brew temperature of 89.6 Celsius, whereas the conical brewer with coarsely ground, dark-roasted coffee has the highest brew temperature of 94.2 Celsius. And so what you're looking at here are histograms of the observed brew temperature. And uh, there's like eight different conditions here. Here's the dark roast, the flat bottom at the fine grind size. Here's the light roast. And you can see the temperatures, there are some pretty significant differences. That's another consequence of changing the geometry. You also change the temperature a little bit. That's also going to affect the dynamics of what happens uh, during um, the brew. Okay. And so, so we have lots of data like this. And, and, and me, as a chemical engineer, I'm having uh, a lot of fun trying to model this uh, using kind of classic chemical engineering transport phenomena methodology. That involves lots of uh, differential equations. Um, so how many people here would like to hear a whole bunch of calculus uh, right now. One, well, two or three hands. If you want to see some of the stuff, like solving, solving this, even in an approximate fashion, involves what's known as a series of coupled first-order linear ordinary differential equations, um, and it's, it's pretty complicated stuff. I'm not going to focus on that today. I have a graduate student who's uh, coming on board uh, right now, actually, and we're spending a lot of time analyzing that. What I'd like to focus on here, though, is what, I think what many people in this audience uh, care about, which is what's the final thing, what happens, okay? And so, so that was the dynamics. Here's the final total dissolved solids of, of each of the brews that we did uh, for some of the um, early stages of the work. Bill is presenting a graph which shows that the flat-bottom brewer produces brews with lower TDS compared to semi-conical brews. The graph also shows that TDS increases as you make the coffee grinds finer. And so what you're looking at here, this is a plot of the total dissolved solids as a function of the different conditions. So the left two are the flat-bottom brewer. The right two are the semi-conical uh, uh, brew basket with the medium and the fine grind. And so a few things jump out right here. Okay, so this is the final TDS of the whole um, uh, brew. Okay? And so right off the bat, you can see, yeah, just in general, okay, the cone yielded much higher TDSs uh, than the flat. Okay? And so um, if I had to have hypothesized ahead of time 
Um, I would have said, well, probably there's a longer path length. Maybe the residence time is longer. It has more time in there to extract, so maybe it'd be higher. Now, we're, what's the benefit of this? We're getting hard data about how much higher it is, okay? And so, you, and you can see that intuitively, you know that if you make it a finer grind, you should get a higher TDS, and that's true. Here's the medium, okay? Here's the fine, and, and it goes up in both cases, okay? Um, the second general trend is the basket shape uh, yielded, actually, a larger TDS change than changing the grind size by 25 uh, percent, okay? And so here's the, here's the flat bottom medium. Here's the semi-conical medium. That's a pretty big change. Just keeping the basket geometry the same and changing that grind size yielded a, a smaller TDS change, okay? And so, in other words, just changing the basket geometry had a bigger impact on this uh, dependent variable of the total brew strength, okay, um, than changing the grind size by a pretty significant amount. Um, and then the third thing that jumps out is, wow, there's a, I mean, a lot of people look and say, what, there's a lot of variability from brew to brew, okay? And so what you, if you're not familiar with box plots, what do they show? The individual uh, points here are the measurements. And each, each uh, condition here, we have 42, N equals 42 brews. So there's more than 160 uh, brews up here on this uh, graph. And there's, there's quite a bit of scatter, okay? And the box plots here represent, this is the, uh, a box plot traditionally shows the 25th and 75th uh, percentiles. So in other words, the size of the box shows that that's the range over which 50% of the data points are inside that. Okay? And so you can take that as kind of one measure of the spread. And so roughly the size of those boxes is on order of plus or minus 0 0.05 uh, TDS. Okay? And so why is there that variability? Well, we, we put the coffee grounds in, did the brew, measured it. This is what we observed. Okay? And so um, one of the hypotheses that we have for why this is happening is that water, as it's moving through coffee grounds, it follows the path of least resistance. Right? And so if you have one brew versus another, with more or less channeling, okay? So if it channels, it finds an easy path through the grounds, it goes through, it doesn't pick up as much dissolved solids, and so the TDS will be lower. And another brew, just because it doesn't have that easy channel, the residence time is longer, it spends more time in contact with the grounds, and it has a higher TDS, okay? Uh, so, so these are the physical measurements, okay? Here's a key question. How do these changes matter for flavor? How do these uh, matter for flavor, okay? And so, um, and this... Uh, is an interesting question, uh, and it turns out kind of a controversial uh, question. And so, um, and so, uh, if you're if you're not like uh, if you're like me and don't spend any time on social media, um, then you might have missed this. Um, but uh, I thought I'd just put it up here. Uh, this there was a, a post a couple of weeks ago by Mr. Uh, Scott uh, Rayo, I guess. Bill is showing an Instagram post by Scott Rayo where he is talking about Bill's paper. Bill has highlighted wording written in capital letters that says. Anyone can tell the difference between 1.1% and 0.7% TDS. Under this quote, Bill has a text box that reads, this is what's known as a testable hypothesis. And I, th I think it's fair to say that he had a, a fairly scathing um, um, analysis of the quality of the data and of the methodology of the experimentation. <clears throat> and I, I won't say much about it. I encourage you to go read it. It's a very interesting <clears throat> uh, post. It engendered uh, several hundred comments. Um, I had journalists contacting me, asking me about my opinion about it. <clears throat> um, I, think, I think the comments there say much more about Mr. Uh, Rayo than they do about UC Davis. But <clears throat> what I would like to focus on here, what I'd like to focus on here, and my initial inclination was to ignore this completely, but I, I think there, there's, there is some confusion out there in the industry. And what I'd like to focus on here is like one, one of the specific uh, criticisms uh, that uh, they're uh, lodging, which is like, you know, what's the point of measuring or doing any type of sensory analysis in these Anyone can tell the difference between 1.1 and 0.7% TDS, okay? All right, and so, so this is like, you've, you did the experiment wrong because these are big changes in extraction, therefore this is a waste of time, okay? Well, um, he very helpfully put this in capital letters. Um, <laughs> and what I'd like to do is just spend a little time thinking about this, okay? Because this, this is a claim, this is what's known in science as a testable hypothesis. And so, um, and I think one thing about the coffee industry is that you, uh, and many people have said this to me, that there's lots of bold claims made with very little data. Here we have some data, okay? And so now let's, let's test this hypothesis. And so how do we do that? How do we test this hypothesis? How do, we, how do we assess whether or not this is true, whether it's true that anybody can tell the difference between 1.1 and 0.7% TDS, okay? Well, the way you do that in sensory science is something called discrimination testing, and I think more colloquially known as triangles, okay? And here's the basic idea. I think many people here are familiar with this idea. You serve, in this context, uh, serve for, for example, three cups of coffee. Two of them are exactly the same, and one is different. Okay? And you present it to a taster, and they have to 
tell you which one is the odd one out, which one's different, okay? And the result of this, the data that you acquire, is a simple yes or no. Yes, they got it right, or no, they did not get it right, okay? And so, and that, that's the basic idea, and anybody who's gone through Q uh, certification um, knows all about this. A key thing here, and what I'd like to um, uh, use as a teachable moment here, is that you have a 33% probability of getting it right just by chance, okay? I mean, you could not even taste it and just grab one of these and say, this one's different, all right? So you have to have a much higher than 33% um, success rate to st conclude that there is a statistically significant difference. And just to really drive this home, here's, uh, this is, you have to start using binomial statistics, all right? And so you might have heard of the phrase binomial distribution. The classic thing that they teach in undergraduate statistics is flipping coins. And so you guys all know that flipping a coin is 50-50 odds, okay, 0.5. Here's a simple question. If you flip four coins, how often are you going to get two heads and two tails? How often are you going to have two successes, two times where you get it right, two times you get it wrong? Okay? And a lot of people uh, who haven't thought carefully about statistics will say, like, oh, about 50% of the time, I guess, right? I mean, you should get, you should get two heads. Well, that's not quite right. So and the way you think about it is you start uh, tabulating all the different possible outcomes. So let's call heads a success, tails a failure, and X is the number of successes. And if you think about possible outcomes, it's possible you can get four tails. Okay, so FFFF. How many different combinations are there where you can get one success? Well, here they are in different orders. Bill has a table showing all the 16 possible combinations when flipping four coins. It shows that the odds of getting two heads when flipping four coins is 6 and 16. Okay, and if you keep going through and adding it all up, here are the proportions. There's only one of 16 possible outcomes where you get all, all failures. There's only one out of 16 where you get all successes. Okay, there's six out of 16 where you can have exactly two heads. Okay, and so that's the table, and if you graph that, it looks like this. So here's the probability versus number of successes. And it is true, you're absolutely true, that you're going to get the most likely individual outcome is two heads. But it's only 38% of the time. So if you want to have a good bar trick, what you do is you bet your friend, I'm going to flip four coins, I bet that you're going to, not, you're going to get not two heads, all right? Because look, if you add up all those other things, that's a 62% probability that you're going to get not two heads, okay? <clears throat> and that's good odds if you bet even money, okay? All right, but that's, that's, that's for coin flips, okay? We can generalize this, okay? And let's think about Q certification. To, to pass your Q, you gotta, you gotta do six triangles, and you gotta get five of them right, okay? And so another a very related question is, if you do six triangles, where again, the chance of you getting it right is 33% just by chance, it's possible that somebody goes through Q certification just doesn't train at all to get all six right. What are the odds of that? Well, you, you can generalize the binomial distribution. If you're mathematically inclined, here are the formulas. Let's just, here I'll just focus on the actual probability. Here's what it looks like. Okay. Bill has a picture of a cupping table with six groups of three bowls. In each set of three bowls, two of the bowls are the same, while the last is the odd one out. A cupper has a one-third chance of correctly identifying the odd one out in each cluster through random chance. Next to this picture is a graph showing the chances of getting zero out of six right, all the way to correctly guessing all six. So you can guess that, you know, if you have one-third chance, all right, the most likely things will get two right, and that's true, okay, all right? But there is a finite, a small but finite probability that somebody, and it's exactly 1.6% probability, that somebody will get five, okay, out of six of those triangles right just by chance, okay? And to get all six right, it's uh, only about one in a thousand, okay? But the cutoff for Q certification is five out of six, and so you can keep this in mind. There's a... Um, there's a, of any Q greater you meet, there's a 1.6% probability that maybe they just got lucky. Okay? All right. Okay. So, um, and that's actually, it turns out that six, all right, that's the minimum number of triangles one can do to have any type of statistical significance where you have that type of small result. What if we do many more triangles? Okay? We can keep going. So here's a probability distribution. If we do 45 triangles, okay? And so this, this is the probability versus the number of successes. And one-third of 45 is 15, and you can see it's centered around 15, okay? But here's the key idea. If you're doing a whole bunch of triangles with a large panel, okay, and if you observe that, like, yeah, I got 15 out of 45, right, well, that's basically no better than random, okay? If, however, you get a result way over here... Bill is pointing out to the far right of the graph, far away from the hump of the distribution graph, where the distribution tails off and becomes very small. From this point on, the graphs get too complicated to describe. To make it easier to follow along, we recommend listening to this podcast while looking at Bill's presentation slides. There's a link in the episode description. We are on slide 45 at the moment. 
these are, these are, these are not zero. They're just infinitesimally small, okay? And what that means is that in the lingo statistics, you can reject the null hypothesis uh, that it's uh, represented by a binomial distribution, okay? And so in other words, there is, in the context of tasting, there is a perceptible, statistically significant perceptible difference. Okay, so that's a little detour into binomial statistics. We did a whole bunch of triangles. We did recruit 45 panelists to do things. And so the way we do things at the coffee center is we have what's known as a sensory descriptive laboratory. Okay? And so we have space to brew the coffee, et cetera. And we have descriptive isolation booths. Okay? And so what is, this is what it looks like. You go in there, there's, there's a booth. You can't see the people to your left or right. That minimizes context bias. You don't want to be looking and seeing somebody grimacing or yum. You, know, you don't want to have that influence from the other people. It has red lights to minimize expectation bias because you look at a cup of coffee and you see how strong it looks, how dark it looks, that'll affect how you perceive it. Okay? And so what we can do is we can slide the triangles through. Here's the three cups of coffee. Their job, again, very simple, just taste all three. And um, which one's different? Which of those two is different? Or which of those three is different? Okay? And so we did a, a two-by-two two factorial design. Right? And so we compared our flat bottom and our conical using two different grind sizes, the medium and the fine. Okay? And so when you do it like that, when you have those four possible um, uh, uh, scenarios, there's actually six triangles one can do. You can compare in the same geometry, two different grind sizes. You can compare the same grind size, two different geometries, and you can do all of the combinations. Okay? So six different triangles. So we recruited 45 untrained consumers, okay? untrained consumers, so not expert panelists, just people who only, the only selection bias what we have is that they are willing and interesting, willing and interested to come taste some black coffee. Okay, so a good proxy for a consumer in a cafe. Okay, so we have 45 untrained consumers. They each tasted the six experimental triangles plus a control triangle, where we did what we thought of as a very obvious difference between a very dark roast and, a, and the light roast. Okay, and when you add up all those numbers, that's a total of 945 cups of coffee. <laughs> 945 cups of coffee served uh, by Dr. Frost. Okay, here's what the raw data looks like. Okay. And so what is this? These are just zeros and ones. It's a one if you get it right, and it's a zero if they got it wrong. Okay? And so each row is a different person. Okay? Each column is a different one of those triangles. Okay? And so let's go back to our binomial distribution, and let's look at a few of the results. And the, the first one is the dark roast versus the light roast. And when we did that, we had 39 successes. Right? And so what, what I thought of is a very obvious difference. It turns out that actually six out of our, five, six out of our 45 untrained consumers couldn't even tell that difference. But it clearly, clearly there's a statistically significant difference because it's way out here, far away from the um, uh, curve over here. So that was our uh, kind of our internal control. Whoops. Here is fine versus medium in the flat. So we changed our grind size by 25%. Changed our grind size by 25%. Doing everything the same, everything the same, uh, you know, same water, same flow rate, everything. Only 18 out of our 45 panelists were able to correctly identify which one was the different one. Okay? And so that's no better than random. It's out here. It's in the middle of the cloud. It's not a statistically perceptible difference. Okay? And then we had a bunch of results in between. So here's flat versus cone. So here we use the same grind size, medium, and 25 out of 45. And so here, that's this little bar right here. And it turns out that that's right on the edge of where you have statistical significantly, uh, statistical significant differences um, or that you're able to discriminate it. Okay? And so uh, I could keep putting things on here, but back to our uh, factorial design, here's all the results. Okay? And so the things highlighted in red here are the success rates. Okay? And so between flat bottom fine and flat bottom medium, only 18 out of 45. Same thing in the semi-conical. Again, that 25% change in grind size, right? only 15 out of 45. No better than random. What is better than random is uh, basically everything else. So here the flat bottom versus semi-conical at the same grind size of 25 out of 45. Over here, flat bottom versus semiconical at the fine grind size, same thing. And then the diagonals were also uh, significant as well. So, so that's the results. Some, I mean, so I think I should emphasize that this was, these differences, these large differences in the extraction of what we observed, by no means a slam dunk, at least not for untrained uh, consumers. Um, another way of looking at the data is looking at the relative proportions of correct versus incorrect. Okay, so green here is correct. Red is incorrect, so it's on a scale of 0 to 45. That's the total number of panelists. Plotted here versus the difference in TDS. So we had the mean TDS for, like, you know, for example, the flat bottom, um, the fine versus uh, flat bottom and the medium. And so here's, 
the key thing. And you can see that there's kind of a trend here, all right? And so for statistical significance, it was somewhere around here, okay? And that is somewhere in the range between 0.24 and 0.4% TDS. That's right on, the, right on the edge of statistical significance. They can perceive it, okay? And look at this. So here, the biggest difference we had, the biggest difference was between 1.25% TDS and 0.7 TDS. And 33 of our panelists got it right. More than a quarter of our panelists did not, okay? And so, and I should emphasize, we also did this uh, with uh, um, some pretty uh, famous coffee industry people um, who also tasted this and also had a hard time judging some of these things. So, back to our testable hypothesis, okay? So, anyone can tell the difference between 1.1 and 0.7% TDS. Well, I think the moral of the story here is that, you know, just because something is written in all capital letters on social media doesn't mean it's true. Okay, um, and I think the, the bigger the bigger story is if, like if you want to if you want to you know really do proper testing or like you know if you want to understand whether some change you're doing okay there's there's a key thing here I mean some people might not like to hear that like such large changes in the total dissolved solids and the percent extraction you know are are not going to be appreciated by a pretty sizable fraction of your consumers but that's what the data are indicating to us so. That was discrimination testing. And so, for those of you not aware, there's like kind of three pillars of sensory science. One is one I just went through in great detail, discrimination testing. Is there a difference? Is there a difference? That's yes or no, okay? The next question is, what does it taste like? Okay, what does it taste like? And that, that's where you do sensory descriptive analysis, okay? And so, we also uh, went into great detail and doing what's known as descriptive analysis. And how do we do that? This is different. We don't use untrained consumers, what we basically did is we recruited the best performing tasters, invited them to come serve on an expert panel, okay? And what does the expert panel do? Well, we, they spend a tremendous amount of time calibrating the panel, all right? And the idea is, uh, you can see the words here, you define your product set, so you, they come in, they spend time calibrating, tasting some of the representative products um, that, with the panel of judges led by the uh, sensory scientists. They start thinking about what attributes uh, they're gonna measure, okay? And so we use the coffee taster's flavor wheel on the corresponding lexicon, and then there's lots of time spent on calibrating the panel using different reference standards. So you can see a few of them here. They smell tobacco so that everybody in the panel agrees that, you know, this aroma that we're smelling, we're going to call that tobacco. Or another uh, reference is rubber, like whiskey. A whole bunch of different references, okay? And so they spend a lot of time calibrating. And then they go into the booths and they taste one coffee at a time, okay? And so here's a list of the different flavor uh, sensory attributes um, that were measured for, for this particular study. And you can see a lot of the things here that are uh, good, floral, chamomile, um, berry, dried fruit, raisin, things that are not so good, musty, dusty, um, you know, burnt wood or uh, rubber, okay? And basically what happens, we again use the isolation boost, the cup of coffee comes in, and then on the little iPad, they use a um, unlabeled uh, uh, bar here to indicate whether that particular attribute is low or high, okay? And so, and they assess for each sample, okay, all of these different attributes. How much berry did I detect? How, much, how sour is it? How bitter is it? Okay. And so for this part of it, we did a two by two by two factorial design. So we wanted to do it for a couple different roasts. We did fine and coarse. We used coarse because we found from the discrimination testing that fine versus medium wasn't even discriminable. So we made an even bigger difference, a 50% difference in grind size. Um, and then we again brewed everything up in the different geometries. We had uh, 12 uh, uh, judges. You always want to do trial replicates. So they tasted blind the same brewed coffee three times, okay, without knowing when it was. There's a total of 26. We did all the full physical measurements. Another uh, 288 cups of coffee served with 26 sensory attributes. That's 7,000, uh, almost 7,500 sensory data points, okay? And so here's what raw data looks like this. So remember the discrimination testing was all zeros and ones. Now they're numbers ranked between zero and 100, right? So if it's super, super bitter, you know, the judge gives it 100. If there's no trace of berry, all right, then they give it a zero for berry. And so again, each, each row is a judge, each column is a different sensory attribute. A lot of data, a lot of data, okay? And so how do we make sense of it? How do we pull trends out? Well, one thing we do is something called analysis of variance, uh, known as ANOVA. You look for statistically significant trends, like which ones are reproducibly higher, like this one has a lot more bitterness than something else, okay? And it turned out that there were about 18 of those 26 attributes that were, by ANOVA, statistically uh, significant, okay? And so because it's such a, a cloud of data, uh, there's lots of different ways to represent it. One of the um, uh, uh, most accepted ways is something called principal component analysis, or PCA. And so the, here's a couple uh, PCA plots. 
And so what you're looking at here, the axes here are what's known as the principal components. And this is a way of taking multi-dimensional data. This is a 26-dimensional data and trying to boil it down to two dimensions. Okay? And what you're looking for in a PCA plot is how much separation is there between things. Okay? And so here in red are all the um, uh, treatments with the different geometries. So red is conical, blue is the flat bottom. And the first thing that kind of jumps out here, the DR stands for dark, LR stands for light. And you can see that there's tremendous horizontal separation based on roast, which is not surprising. We expect those things to taste differently. Uh, more interesting is the vertical separation based on the basket geometry. So you can see that there's a tremendous amount of vertical separation just by changing the geometry of the brew basket. And one of the nice things about this is you can then analyze what are the drivers, what's driving these differences in the PCA. And so here are the, some of, the, of those 18 statistically significant um, flavor attributes. And as you can see, the drivers up here, there's sourness and citrus. So the light roast and the either fine or coarse in the conical is driven up this way. Right? So in other words, using the conical geometry, which remember yielded those higher TDSs, was also associated by our expert panel with much higher sourness and citrus uh, flavors. In contrast, the, uh, the flat bottom okay, was more associated with uh, sweetness and dried fruit and kind of floral flavors. And so I think that that's worth emphasizing that, again, all we're changing is the geometry of the basket. And when we do that, we change the TDS, okay, of course, but we also change the flavor profile of what's coming out in a pretty significant way. Okay? And uh, for the more uh, scientifically inclined, here's one of the uh, plots in our, um, one of the figures in our paper. This is showing um, a subset of the statistically significant uh, uh, interactions uh, for either roast uh, versus geometry or roast versus grind, or grind versus geometry. And what you can look at here, for example, is that here, just picking bitterness, for example, all right, Here's the, for the light roast and the cone versus flat. The different letters here represent um, uh, different treatments that were statistically significantly different. Okay? And so basically A, B, C, D, each of these were different. But looking at a student in geometry, the cone versus flat, these are statistically significantly different, for example, on bitterness. Okay? Um, and so that's our expert panel. We measured in great detail what does it taste like as a consequence of these different treatments. The third pillar of sensory science is back to our original question, which one's better? What, what do people like the best? What's, what's their preference? Okay. Right. And so to do that, we have to do what's known as uh, consumer preference testing. And so we brought in another group of uh, um, untrained consumers. Okay. Again, a cohort that's supposed to represent, you know, the only selection bias is that they're willing to come taste some black coffee. So it's a good proxy for customers in a cafe. Okay. So 85 untrained customer, consumers, they each tasted just four cups of coffee. Um, brewed either in the flat or the conical and either the light or the dark roast, so same grind size and everything, okay? And they ranked each on a nine-point hedonic scale, going from all the ways from, like, you know, I hated it to all the ways to I loved it, okay? And we also did something called kata, check all that apply. So we had a subset of the different sensory descriptive uh, attributes and asked them, like, do you, do you taste berry? You know, if you do, check it, okay? And so here's the hedonic uh, uh, outcome, so here's one of them. So here's our traditional nine-point scale from dislike extremely up to like extremely, and the different colors here represent the different treatments, so dark roast in the flat bottom, light roast in the flat bottom, uh, et cetera, okay, the conical, conical. And th this is called a violin plot, a violin plot. And so, um, and the way we did it, we separated these 85 uh, consumers and their taste preferences into this violin plot uh, using something called hierarchical agglomeration clustering. And so what we did was looked for um, different clusters or different, you can think of it as different market segments, and how did they, how are they associated with each other, how did they like uh, the coffee. And the key uh, take-home message here is that when we separated it uh, here using the uh, agglomeration clustering, there was one, uh, uh, each cohort strongly disliked one of the treatments. And so, for example, here, cluster one was characterized, they hated, they hated the dark roast conical, okay? In contrast, cluster two um, hated the light roast uh, conical. So that was kind of a roast uh, preference, uh, difference. And then over here, you can see these guys, cluster four, for example, didn't like the light roast and the flat bottom, okay? And so, when you ask which one's best, what do people like best? I mean, this points to, well, it depends. Different people like different things, okay? And so some strongly like this and some, some like others. And so as you guys, anybody who's worked in cafe, know that everybody has different preferences. We can also go a little bit deeper, though, using the kata, okay? And so here are the different attributes that we asked. And here's the percentage of people who responded for each of the different treatments with that. And so you can see most of them, you know, said bitter. Coffee's typically bitter, so most of the consumers clicked on the bitter. And you can see all the way through here down to raisin, not many uh, clicked on raisin. And the interesting thing here is the differences in the treatments about how much, so here, for example, sour was, uh, a lot of people indicated sour for the purple and green, which is the 
light roast in the flat bottom and the semi-conical. And so you can take data like this and do something called a lift analysis and see how did these kata scores, how did those affect the hedonic pleasure judgments, okay? And here's, here's what that looks like. So here's overall opinion of the coffee. And any, so here's, these, these are like the bonuses or penalties associated with checking that. And so in other words, if a person uh, indicated it as floral, right, that was associated with a, uh, a full one-point increase on the hedonic scale. So in other words, they liked it. Right? In contrast, rubber, everybody hated rubber. So if they tasted rubber in their coffee, that was associated with almost a one point, negative 1.5 uh, penalty. Right? So, and going back to our sensor descriptive, we can isolate what uh, brew treatment yielded the most pronounced rubber flavor, okay, uh, as judged by our expert panel. And that, if you uh, want to avoid that, then that's the uh, brew technique you want to avoid. So I think I'm running out of time, and I want to leave time for questions. So just to conclude here, all right, the basket geometry does a whole bunch of things. It does a whole bunch of things. I mean, clearly strongly affects extraction dynamics and the final TDS, okay? It does yield statistically significant perceptible differences, okay? It does, all right? But they're not obvious. They're not slam dunks. Not everybody uh, can tell the difference, okay? Not everybody can tell the difference. Um, very significant differences in the flavor profile, and... Certain combinations, okay, engender strong dislike amongst certain market segments, certain consumer populations. So the, the, everything we're talking about here, it's uh, currently in peer review at the Journal of Food Science. Uh, Scott Frost uh, did, um, did all this work, okay. Um, and what I'd like to emphasize is, like, this is a small part of a big project, okay. So we served a couple thousand cups of coffee, and it's a small part of a big project. The bigger project, Scott is talking about, again, just as a reminder, in uh, an hour and a half later this morning, he's talking about the coffee brewing control chart. So I strongly encourage you to go see that. And tomorrow morning, uh, uh, Kenzie uh, Batali is going to be talking about some of our sensory descriptive work of the fractionation. And so, um, just to acknowledge people, um, again, I'm a chemical engineer, so if I said anything uh, imprecise about sensory science, um, it's my fault, uh, not my... I've learned a lot from uh, Jean-Xavier Guinard. He's a, a great colleague. I've had a lot of fun working with him. Scott did all of this work. Kenzie's been helping. Big thanks to our sponsors, so especially Coffee Association with underwriting from Breville. Um, we also had a lot of uh, help from uh, um, other entities donating coffee and stuff, and we have an army of undergraduates who are uh, helping out. And so with that, I'm very, uh, thank you so much for your attention. I'm very happy to take questions. Or if there's no questions, I can go into calculus. Yeah. A member of the audience has asked Bill if he can share the recipe he used when experimenting with the Breville Brewers. Oh, yeah. So I guess I didn't mention that here. I think we used a constant brew ratio. So I think for every single brew, I think we used 55 grams of uh, ground coffee to 1,000 grams of water. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, yeah, 55 to 1,000. The Breville doesn't do uh, pulsing, at least not that I'm familiar with. Uh, so we just, uh, just a constant flow rate. At Scott's talk later today, uh, we, um, we used the uh, Curtis Brewers, um, where we did do stuff with like different water pulsing duty cycles. That's a different set of work. Here today, we're just talking about what's the difference of flat versus conical. So... Okay, thank you. Yes. An audience member is asking, why do the first few drops have a lower TDS compared to the drops immediately afterwards in the conical brewer? Good, good question. Good question. Yeah, we've been fascinated by this. I mean, so uh, for those of you who don't know, there's a, there is some mathematical modeling out there. There's a group, uh, Moroni at Allen Ireland, um, who have done, like looked at the, a pretty complicated set of uh, convective diffusion equations. The main model predictions kind of match onto people's intuition that it's going to start high and then decrease. Okay. And here we have uh, data that's very reproducible. I, can't, I don't know if you can see the error bars. We've done this many times. We've confirmed that in this geometry with the conical um, basket, with the, I believe this is the fine grind, we get this over and over again. Okay. And, so, and the first time I saw it, I thought, no, this must be wrong. It's supposed to come out strong and then become weaker. That's not how it behaves. It looks like this. So I can, I can hypothesize. One of my main hypotheses is that uh, what's going on um, here we have a very different uh, surface area to volume ratio of the, of the bed of grounds. Right? And so I think what happens is that the conical takes longer to heat up and then retains heat better. And so I think early on, because don't forget, the first water that comes in, it's hot, but it's landing on room temperature coffee grounds. And so you have loss of heat. So the first brew is not happening at a high temperature. If, if it comes in early on and uh, it can reach the thermal equilibrium more quickly, and we have temperature data exploring this, that's, that's my main hypothesis, that it's a transient thermal effect. Um, so short answer, that, that was a long way of saying I'm not sure, but we're working on it. But this, uh, we, I think we, we very clearly observe this uh, over and over again. An audience member is noting that many baristas will agitate the grounds when using a conical pour-over brewer. 
they note that the Breville used in the experiment doesn't agitate the grounds. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. So that, that's a great question. Uh, our goal here um, was not to be expert baristas, but our goal here was to see how the, how the apparatus behaved the way a typical consumer would do it. So most consumers at home would not be sitting there stirring the coffee. So what we're looking at is like how, how did that basket geometry, just swapping that out, how did that affect the flavor profile? Sir. An audience member is asking what type of coffee was used in the experiments. Yeah, it was, we used a Colombian wet washed um, but we, we kept it constant through the experiment. So, yeah, I believe so, yes. It's in the, I'm sure it's in the methodology section of our paper, but I don't recall offhand, I'm sorry. Yes? An audience member is asking whether Bill has done consumer preference testing specifically targeted at specialty coffee consumers. Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. So, like, for our consumer uh, results, our hedonic stuff, you have to keep in mind, like, we, we did it in Davis, California, so it's a very millennial, millennial trending Northern California population, many students... Um, whether or not that's representative of Boston uh, and who's used to Dunkin' Donuts, that's a different question. So doing consumer testing is tricky. But it's, it tells us something. It tells us at least how students at UC Davis or staff at UC Davis, how they responded uh, to it. To do what you're asking for, that's, uh, that's a bigger, bigger project. And so suggested to Mr. Giuliano. Uh, yeah, okay. Yes, sir. An audience member is asking Bill to give more information about the clusters of consumer preferences from slide 55. Yeah, they're different, uh, a good question, they're um, different groups of individuals who tasted the coffee, okay? And they're not separated by ethnicity or gender or anything like that. Um, they're separated by how they responded to, uh, on that nine-point scale. So, um, so over here you can see cluster one, they all had roughly similar responses to the dark roast flat bottom, the light roast flat bottom, and the light roast clinical and what, stood, what made Cluster 1 stand out is, what, wow, they all really dislike this one. Okay? So it's, it's internal to how they re- responded to the coffees. Right? So it's not, not based on age or anything like that. So it would be the same people in all four? No, no. So this, I think there's 85 total. And I forget the numbers. There's probably like 20 people here, 25 here, 25 here. Four separate groups. Differentiated statistically based on, based on how they responded to the coffee. And there is a bit of arbitrariness here. You can, you can, you can specify, I only want two groups. Or I want 20 groups, but if you specify too few, too many groups, then it loses meaning. Too few groups, yeah. They're all they're all doing the same test, but it's how you it's how you it's how you lump them together uh, based on the response. Yes, yeah, very good question. Thank you. Yes. An audience member is asking whether the results would be similar if the experimenters changed the bed depth or the brew ratio. So I, I think. Physically, what you do is you would get a higher TDS, so you'd bump everything up to higher TDSs. Extraction curve with the, with the offset extraction for the conic, would you expect that to be the same if you had much thicker? I mean, that would be my first hypothesis. I mean, I think we're seeing that for the conical. I think if you make it even bigger in terms of the bed, it would be weird. It would be weird if it went away. But as a scientist, I'd say we'd have to do the experiment and you know and check that hypothesis. We have, like, at least for this brewery ratio, we've done many, many experiments. And so that, that trend is robust, and we're trying to sort it out. Yeah. yeah. Sir. An audience member is asking whether it would make economic sense to choose a conical basket brewer with less coffee compared to a flat-bottom brewer because conical brewers deliver a higher TDS. So as a, as a professor and a scientist, I don't usually make economic uh, um, advice. Um, but <clears throat> I think one of the implications is that, like, a significant fraction of consumers wouldn't be able to tell if you water down your coffee, all right? I mean, that, but um, whether or not that's a good idea to do, there's another segment of your consumers who might be very sensitive to that change and, like, would be very uh, displeased by that, all right? So it's, uh, it's up to you. Yeah. Hmm. Very good questions. Yes, sir. An audience member is asking whether Bill has considered making the varieties of coffee one of the variables in these experiments. So we're ramping up some projects now with, like, where we're specifically looking at kind of like uh, commodity coffees versus uh, specialty coffees, um, not for the geometry business, but for other things as well. And so that's one of the goals for the coffee center is like we want to be a place where we can do research to answer, you know, basically any question that pertains to coffee. Um, and so there's a, I have a very, very long list of unanswered scientific questions. I'd love to, it would have been great to do all this with like, you know, a rare Yurgachev and see how the blueberry pops, you know, but like we just, we haven't done that yet. Um, if you're interested, come talk to us. An audience member is asking whether Bill and his team will post the results of their research on social media. So <clears throat> I don't do social. Um, 
Um, I mean, the, so the way scientists do things is we, we publish, uh, you know, peer-reviewed scientific things. And so one of the things I'm really excited about for the coffee center is we do have a strong collaboration with the Specialty Coffee Association. And so this, this stuff, for example, is a good example. We have not only this paper that's in peer review right now at a sciencey journal written in very sciencey language. We also partnered with them to make a kind of plain English version available in the 25 magazine. So there, there is a summary of the first part of this research in the current edition of 25. And so that's, um, it's easier for me to understand and hopefully it's uh, easier uh, for you guys as well. Um, but we want to have kind of that dual publication strategy. Um, and I, I don't spend time on Instagram fighting with people. So that's not what I do. Okay. Thank you so much for your attention. That was Professor Bill Ristenpart at Specialty Coffee Expo in April 2019. Remember to check out our show notes for a full episode transcript of this lecture and a link to coffeeexpo.org for more information about this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA Podcast Expo Lecture Series, brought to you by members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by SAP's Soft Engine Coffee One. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.